Today's episode of Ephemeral features the track Deathless by musician Nathaniel Krauss. Hear the full piece at nathanielkrauss.bandcamp.com. Links and more on our website, ephemeral.show. Ephemeral is a production of iHeart 3D Audio. This is our second episode, based on my conversation with explorer and author Erling Kage. If you missed it, part one will give you more backstory about Erling's life as an explorer. Have you done a lot of interviews, Erling? I feel like you've done probably a tremendous amount of interviews in your life. <laughs> I have never counted. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it, when silence came out and also walking came out and philosophy for polar explorers, I did. Hundreds of interviews, probably, but recently, not so many. I guess I'm late to the party. That, that happened. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Erling spent his young adulthood engaged in record-setting expeditions, sailing around the world, climbing Mount Everest, hiking to the North and South Poles on foot, the latter completely alone. Then I kind of changed my life and became a family man. I'm still a family man. But I think it's a season for everything. And I keep on doing outdoors, I keep on doing expeditions, but with a lower profile. And I really enjoy writing books. In 2019, after we put out the episode Sounds of Silence on the work of composer John Cage, a friend gave me a copy of Erling's 2016 book, Silence in the Age of Noise. This is probably the trickiest question I'll give you all day, but what, what is silence? Silence is, to me, more like an idea, in the sense that before I start to write about silence and also before I walked alone to the South Pole, almost in total silence, I thought about silence as the opposite to sounds. But, of course, sounds you can measure in decibels, while silence you can't really measure. So, to me, silence is kind of the opposite of noise. And then I think about noise, obviously it sounds, but it's also all kinds of distractions you have throughout the day that your telephone is beeping, a car is passing, a radio is running. And of course also you like man-made lights during the night, you can't see the starry night. And all this is noise to me. And silence is about yourself, it's about your inner core, it's about getting to know yourself. And this silence, the inner silence, is there all the time, waiting for you to explore it. We're living in the age of noise. So much is about noise, so much is about forgetting yourself and about living through other people, living through your telephone, living through TV series, living through games, etc. You keep on telling yourself all these kind of small day-to-day lies and half-truths. Silence is about the opposite. It's about getting to know yourself. And of course, to get to know yourself, that has been said for thousands of years. That's one of the most important things you can do to live a rich life. And I think every idea that has survived for more than 1,000 years, you should take seriously. In the book, Erling cites a lot of great sources on silence, including artists, philosophers, scientists, and poets. But maybe the most important research came from personal experience. You know, 
my best background is that I walked by myself to the South Pole for 50 days and nights with no radio contact in total silence into this huge, vast, white nothingness, which is Antarctica to the South Pole as the first doing it solo. That expedition taught me a great lesson of silence because, you know, when you walk down there and you don't talk to anyone, and you kind of stop thinking because as soon as you start to think too much, you think about the past or the future, that's kind of noise too. So you're starting to experiencing the world, experiencing yourself, getting to know yourself better. When I started out, I felt that everything was white and everything was flat all the way to the horizon. But as the hours and days and weeks passed by, I kind of started to see that it wasn't totally white after all. It was a little bit bluish, reddish, greenish, even pinkish in the snow and the ice. And it wasn't flat either. It was kind of different structures on the ice. So then I started to wonder if Antarctica was changing. But of course, Antarctica remained the same. I was the one who changed. That experience really taught me a great lesson on silence. As the poet Emily Dickinson wrote, the brain is wider than the sky. And by that expedition, I very well understood what she meant. And then I became a father of three girls and I had to start to get a proper job. And my life became all about noise afterwards. So this combination about doing outdoors and living a busy life like most other people made me really feel for writing on silence. And also, then I sat down to read great philosophers on silence and also some, you know, some great authors who have already written about silence. But the problem with the philosophers is that, you know, hardly any philosophers actually write about silence. One of the first things you read and learn at college studying philosophy is that Nothing comes from nothing. Ex nihilo nihil fit. You know, it's easy to think about silence as nothing, and then nothing comes from nothing. I was just surprised to see how few philosophers actually had bothered thinking about silence. Why do human brains opt for chaos? Why does it seem like all of us are just, our brains are just destined for chaos sometimes? You know, to me, it was a surprise because when I sat down to write about silence, you know, I thought about myself and everybody else that in the mind that you didn't have too much chaos. But starting to think further about it, I think we all have this chaos in our head almost all the time. The importance of silence is sometimes to get order of all this chaos, being present in our own lives, to experience, not to think too much. Also, in the silence, you're kind of seeking opportunities. So silence is also kind of opposite all this chaos that goes on in our minds all the time. You know, technology is certainly a great disturber, but I think it's important to think about, you know, time before all this technology. 350 years ago, 370 years ago, this French philosopher, Blaise Pascal, wrote this book where he claimed that no man is able to sit by himself for 15 minutes in silence, doing nothing. Of course, when he wrote this in the 1640s, it was already a big problem that we have chaos in our minds. But of course, today, with the smartphone and all this other technology, the problem has become so much more massive. 
So back to Pascal again, instead of doing nothing, we start to do something. And I think that's the origin of, of course, not all, but most of our problems. If I manage to kind of sometimes just be quiet, be still, listening to ourselves, not exploring yourself and the world by looking into a screen, but kind of look up. I think you can find much more peace and you can find much more love, I think. And you will live a more meaningful life. So it's not about being anti-technology, it's more like learning how to relate to technology because, you know, it's almost insane if you think about the way we're living relating to technology. When I walk the streets and I see grown men grabbing the telephones to the air like there should be teddy bears and totally focused on that telephone, to me it's absolutely insane. I don't know what kind of words you can, I love to use in the program, but it kind of, you know, your mind gets absolutely fucked up. You sit home, you're Googling something, you find what you're searching for, and 20 minutes later, or half an hour later, you're still Googling. Some of the brightest people on earth hey. are working day and night, extremely well paid, to get you addicted to all these apps. And you know, in many ways, it is absolutely terrible. One of the things that I, I really appreciate about your writing is that you insert yourself so much into it. Like you talk about those things as being problematic, but also like participating yourself in them, like as just like another member of, you know, of the human race in this modern era. And that's how I feel, man. I mean, like, you know, I, I, I'm big on the mindfulness and disconnecting and getting out and the silence, but I also am doing this. I do the same thing. I get in on the phone. I, I feel like I talked on the phone for eight hours yesterday or something. Yeah, you probably did. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't like to write a book and give everybody advice about how to live and look at me because I'm such a great person. Because, you know, I'm also getting hooked on this technology. And that's also why I thought I had a message to tell because I lived through it. I always have my phone with me somehow or I'm tempted to have my phone with me all the time. Maybe the biggest mistake we're doing in the world today is to avoid nature, to think that we're kind of above nature, that we don't need nature, that we don't need to listen to nature. I think that's a main reason for people feeling restless, why they feel insulated, why they feel lonely, quite also why people feel depressed, because we avoid nature. Homo sapiens have always been a walking species. We have always been exploring the world by walking, by feeling, by touching, by smelling, listening, seeing. And that has defined us as a species. While today we're the first generation who just sit on our arses and exploring the world, looking down into a screen. And of course this is doing something to our mental health. I just read in the paper somewhere that people like average spend four hours every day on social media and other people of course spend four hours every day on looking at tv and what if you do both but let's say you spend four hours every day doing this kind of media that adds up to 120,000 hours of your life about 13 years day and night plus minus when you are as old as me you start to go to 60th 70th 80th 90th birthdays in Norway and Sweden, we have this poem which goes, Alle disse dager som kom og gikk, 
Inte skönte jag att det var själva livet. All these days and months and years that passed by came and went. I didn't really understand that was life. Do you know it's a little bit sad because somehow people start to fear not only death, but maybe even more, they start to fear late in life that they kind of missed out on this huge opportunity to have a great life. But do not despair. How does one find silence in the noise? Maybe try taking a walk. What does it mean to live in the present moment? I think it's an idea that we're all familiar with, but like, what does that look like? Like, how, how does one achieve such a thing? You can achieve it by almost any means. First of all, I think, in general, the present hurts. Just like Pascal I mentioned earlier on, the present hurts. And that's why we try to avoid it. And the opposite to the present, of course, it's the future and the past. And every time we think, as I said, we're thinking about the future and the past. The present has to be about experiencing the moment there and then. I can do it in nature, but you know, it's also about shutting out the world and experiencing your own silence or your inner silence whenever you run, cook food, have sex, study, chat work, think of a new idea, read or dance. And you know, I love it. That's when you can be really in the present moment. And of course, if you make low and you're not in the present moment, of course, we all experience that, but it's not so interesting to make low if you're not <laughs> in the present moment, I think. It's different. In 2018, Erling published Walking One Step at a Time. I think walking is quite often about silence. Of course, you can walk with people and talk or, you know, use your phone or listening to music. But sometimes I would try to walk without holding anything in my hands and not having anything in my ears. And then it is very much about silence. You have it in the English language, just like you have it in Norwegian language and in Sanskrit, that when you move, you're being moved motion emotion <laughs> so this is something you find in almost any language at least as i know about so this walking is doing something to your mind the reason socrates was walking all the time was not because he wanted to become fit it was because he wanted to meet people and he wanted to think better like a steve jobs definitely a huge and very important innovator and businessman. And of course, he walked all the time too. And also, of course, I think a great thing with walking is that get out of the house, you get away from your family, you get away from your friends, you can have a break. And you can decide your own speed. And hopefully you can see the starry night or the sunrise, or you can listen to the birds or listening to a river or you just footsteps. And all this is about getting closer to yourself. I think it's definitely a form of meditation. And I think meditation in, in general and yoga and uh, mindfulness, all these are, to me, great ideas. But one of the reasons I wrote those two books was because I felt you can definitely experience great meditation and also deeper inner silence without using any techniques.
for instance, just by walking. It's cheap and it's always available. Like I flew from Oslo to Sri Lanka to be on this retreat. It was Ayurveda, it was uh, vegan, it was yoga all the time. It was quite silent, peaceful, and it was great. I mean, I came home after 12 days or something to Norway. I was very happy, but then I started to wonder, did I really have to travel half the world to experience this kind of emotion? And uh, yeah, I haven't gone back to Sri Lanka. I found it very interesting when you mentioned that you personally maybe use walking as, as one of your primary modes of meditation. Maybe that's a little culturally determined, right? Like if you had been born somewhere else, grown up somewhere else, that maybe it would be a, a different approach. Absolutely. It's interesting to see in terms of walking. It's like I grew up in Norway. We're close to nature. We didn't have a car. My father insisted that cars and TV and motorboats and a few other things were diseases in the world. <laughs> so we walked quite a bit. So, of course, that was kind of ingrained in my life. One of the most difficult questions I had as a father was my daughters, all three daughters, they always asked me, why do we have to walk when it's faster to drive? And I think that's a very good question. And that's also another reason I wrote the book, because, you know, some of the best and obvious things in life are not that easy to explain. When I wrote about walking, I had to study walking cultures in different places. And interestingly, like in Mumbai in India, you see poor people walking all the time, while rich people, they are having cars and even helicopters to get around. And of course, in Northern Europe, you see that it's the opposite. It's quite often the privilege of walking because they have the time and also, you know, quite often they live in nicer neighborhoods or closer to the forest. So it's kind of more natural to walk. But walking is something also deeply democratic because everybody can do it. When you read about the big revolutions in history of the world, at least the ones I read about, they have usually started by people walking the streets. And of course, this is something politicians quite often are kind of worried about because if sufficient of people walking the streets they become very very powerful and also walking is a bit anarchistic in the sense that as long as you're driving you will kind of get from a to b in a particular speed and you follow the rules or you take the metro or you take the tram or you take the bus and it's all kind of regulated by the government but then by walking you can walk wherever you like you don't have to follow the tracks of the metro or the tram. And you can have your own speed. You can do detours and you can stop whenever you please. You mentioned politicians, right? Like certainly here in the U.S., I think of it at least like a certain echelon of politician. Like they come up in black cars, they're surrounded by people. They sort of swoop in on a place and then they leap out. You don't really see your representatives walking around with the people. And I guess it's different in Norway. Yeah, I think that's a very valid point because, you know, one problem is, of course, that you never see your own politicians. Good afternoon, everybody. Another quiet weekend. But I think it's an even bigger problem that the politicians never see you. I'm not commenting. So they're kind of absolutely separated from their own citizens. And, of course, you know, this makes sense due to security and blah, blah, blah. 
but I also think it's kind of a lacking willingness to meet people because it's quite comfortable to move around and not having to relate to the people. Today it has become a democratic problem in many parts of the world that the people who are supposed to help you to sort out your problems and support you and be your best representative in the government, they know you through statistics and by reading and studying and advisors, but they have absolutely no cue who you are. As I said, in Norway, fortunately, it's better. It's not perfect here either, but here you can actually see of a prime minister shopping milk in the evening on the way back home from her office. It's, <laughs> it's quite sweet. And of course, with 5.5 million people, it's much, much easier. But I think it's very important for everybody to walk the streets and get to know your fellow citizens and see what they look like. It's important to keep in mind that it was not we who invented the possibility to walk on two legs, it was the possibility to walk on two legs who invented humanity. And then eventually, due to evolution, we can walk on two legs. We were able to move much longer distances, able to hunt, fish, move around, covering huge distances. Then all the time that we went out from Eastern Africa, it has always been about walking, about doing something physical to survive and to prosper. For over civilization, of course, the development of languages has been very important. Farming has been very important and walking has been very important to make us into who we are today. So many people talk all the time about the search in a hurry. It's there has so much to do, blah, 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 blah. But of course, if you're going to watch a lot of TV and social media, it feels like you have a lot to do. But you know, you really have time to spend five or 10 minutes extra walking in general. It's a huge misunderstanding like this that you had to drive all the time to save time. Time is extended when you move slowly. And opposite, if you drive quickly from A to B, you don't hardly experience anything either in a tunnel or on the surface, but still have to watch the light, you have to be careful. And although it goes quicker, nothing is happening. And then it feels like time moves really quickly. However, when you move slowly from A to B, and suddenly you start to see people, you start to see how people are dressed. If you're in a city, you start to see shops, what the houses are looking like, you start to get the smells, you hear all the sounds. And then, because so many small things are happening, time is expanding and you feel that you have experienced something and life gets richer. Then kind of a tenth of a second can feel like eternity. I can have the kind of also same experience in my own living room if I'm reading a great book or thinking or listening to music. Suddenly I have this kind of feeling that like time is just expanding. But then again, if you're kind of doing the same things every day, hardly any variety, you hardly see anything one day that you didn't see the day before or experience more or less exactly the same things, then time moves very quickly. And like people said to me, like, oh, you know, you turned 58 years ago, that moves so quickly and now I'm 60. It can hardly tell them that, you know, I feel that life is long. Time moves slowly. I don't want it to move any slower. 
You've got a great quote. I think this is one of yours. You quote lots of brilliant people, obviously, too. But this one, letting your body travel at the same speed as your soul. Yeah, it's a quote from me, but the idea is not original. I think many people have felt the same and talked about the same. If you move too quickly, your spirit, your soul is just lagging behind you. That's also what I mean, like you're not experiencing so much. You're not digesting your what you're seeing, what you're kind of going through because we have gone too fast. Another big misunderstanding today is like things are going to happen quickly. You're going to have a quick fix. You're going to go from one mood to another fast. While I'll find it when I'm out in uh, nature that I'm just becoming a part of everything which is surrounding me. Every now and then, when the wind is blowing, you kind of feel it's a part of you. You know, if you see a bird which somehow, you know, has a broken leg or wing or whatever, kind of painful for you too. We need to respect nature and we need to learn from nature and we need to listen to nature because nature has a lot to tell us about where we come from, where we are, and also quite a bit about what's going to happen next. And of course, when you walk in the cities or do an hour hike in the forest, Hardly ever something fantastic is happening. But like small details are going on all the time. I have kind of fun or fun interesting sometimes to look at people, how they walk. Quite often by looking how they move forward, you can tell if they're in good mood, bad mood, if they're depressed, if they are optimistic. Like if you're really sad, you kind of crumbling in, almost shrinking, and you're dragging your feet after you. You kind of lower your head, lower your neck. Even, you know, breathing in a different way. And you're much more tense in your whole body. And opposite, if someone is super happy, just got a great message, they walk totally differently. If a couple walk together, if they're in love, you know, you can just tell by the body language. And opposite, two people walk together and they have fed up with each other. You can also tell by your body language. And also if one is fed up and the other one is still in love, you can also tell. You can also quite often tell, I wouldn't say accurately, but what kind of profession they have. One of my neighbors is a former army officer and he still walks like an army officer, although he's retired. How do you plead? You can spot a lawyer or an auditor. They kind of look a little bit similar. And a priest will walk differently again. How long has it been since your last confession? I'm not saying it's kind of one-to-one. -one. You can just tell that guy is a priest, that guy is a football player. But it's just fun to try to guess. In general, in life, I think curiosity. Curiosity also about people is uh, super important. I love curiosity. And I think, you know, if you stop being super curious, then you become a very old man. Are there moments in your day, there's certainly moments in my day where it's like, okay, I need to just stop what I'm doing. I need to hit pause on the rest of my life and just walk for like 20 minutes. Yeah, in my life too. And I think 20 minutes is a good number because it doesn't have to be long. 20 minutes is great, I think, but even less can change you dramatically. As you know, you asked earlier on about meditation. We just walk for 15, 20 minutes. 
and without talking on the phone or checking your phone and maybe not talking to anyone, just kind of having a break. To me, that absolutely can re-energize me. You still need as much sleep, at least I do, but my whole attitude and also the way I move is totally changes. I think this is something like people have been doing through every generation for thousands of years. But interestingly now, you can see like, you know, quite often universities are starting to study kind of what everybody knows. And uh, I think it's University of Stanford, University of Virginia, something together that have kind of proven that just by walking 15 minutes, your creativity goes dramatically up and your mood goes up and, you know, it makes wonder for you. But of course, two and a half thousand years ago, Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine, he said, the best medicine in the world is to do a walk. And if you come back from a walk and you're still in a bad mood, you should go for one more walk. And his third advice was just make sure the doctor is not giving you the wrong medicine. So I think it's <laughs> three great advices also in 2021. It's wild to me because I feel like we all know that, that walking is good for your health, your spirit, your mood, your heart, your soul. Like, I think we all intrinsically know that. And yet sometimes it feels, I don't know, like hard advice to take, like to just take a break. Yeah, it's quite often when I read articles, it's about educating people, like telling them what's best for them and blah, blah, blah. And this should be done by, you know, of course, schools, college, the government, private businesses, they should all kind of tell you what's good for you, which quite often has a good reason. But quite often, as you say, we know what's good for us. Nobody needs to tell you, you should exercise, you should walk, you should move around, you should not sit in a chair all day. This almost everybody knows. Quite often, it's not a lack of knowledge. It's just lack of like, you know, a little bit of guts to get going. Yeah. When you were writing the book, I mean, what, you might've known some of this already, but like health-wise, physical, bodily health-wise, it seems like walking can be incredibly good just for your well-being. It is, as Hippocrates said two and a half thousand years ago, as you know, it's quoted, it is the best medicine. I, you know, it's an open question today should be careful saying it, but you know, it's kind of open question today if doctors throughout history has saved more people than they have killed. At least if you look before you got antibiotics, I think that maybe not killed, but you know, made even, you know, conditions even worse. But of course with antibiotics, it was radical. That helped a lot of people. But prior to, let's say, 1940, whenever, 45, it's not easy to figure out how much help it was with doctors actually. But one thing which is absolutely certain is that people who walk a lot, they're less sick, they are more flexible, they're not only living longer life than other people, they also live richer and more meaningful lives than other people. But still, you know, even in Norway, you could just tell in many parts, like even in Oslo with the capital of Norway with 600,000 people, it's still kind of, you know, huge neighborhoods where very few people are walking. They spend much more time smoking, watching TV, being inside. The average in those parts of the city lives nine years less than the average in other parts of the city. This is quite dramatic. 
That's a super sad note. Um, I don't have a follow-up on that. I'm just going to change the subject. (laughs) Do you have any advice, practical advice for somebody that might be listening and like wants to find some silence in their life, some peace and some purpose, but is maybe struggling? Uh, I think everybody almost is struggling with it. So that's a good start, at least, if you feel that you are unique because you're struggling with it. It's like, as we quoted Pascal, the philosophers, etc. This is a universal problem or challenge to get to know yourself. And silence is, you know, very much about experiencing yourself. So, first of all, it is difficult. As we said, the present is hurting. So I think that's a good start to accept that. But then again, the silence we're talking about now, this inner silence, is within you at all times, just waiting for you to explore it. So it's no hocus pocus, and I don't think you need any formula. You need to just pass this threshold that we talked about that for a few seconds or some minutes, it is uncomfortable to sit or walk and doing nothing and try to get into your inner PC and experience your own silence. It is uncomfortable sometimes. It takes a lot of energy sometimes. And it can feel to start with as a waste of time sometimes. But of course, it's not. It's what, you know, partly makes life uh, meaningful. Most important question you should ask yourself is, how should I live my life? You need silence. And your silence is different from my silence. That's also why in my book, I'm not giving that many advices because we have to accept like, you know, everybody got their own silence. And the reason is because silence is about who we are. It's about our personalities, about all our experiences. That's why your silence will always be different from my silence. That was really lovely. Thank you. Um, I wanted to at least ask just if you could tell me a little bit about your, your publishing company and why you started and the, kind of, and the kind of work that you do there. You know, you do whatever you do, you do it for more than one reason. But a few of the reasons I started publishing was because my girlfriend was pregnant. So I want to have a job. I want to have an interesting job. I like publishing because... You both have to be commercial, but you also have to think about intellectual matters all the time. So kind of, you need to think about both, which fitted me. And I have always read this since I was 10 years old. I learned how to read late. I read lots of books. I was kind of familiar with literature, so I felt I had something to contribute. And I want to earn enough money so I could buy a house for my family. So that's kind of why I started book publishing. And I did it for a few years and I liked it a lot. So now I've done it for 25 years. It's a, it's a great job. I don't know if I'm going to do it for the rest of my life, but at least it is a great job to publish books. So today we are Norway's biggest on nonfiction. And we also publish children's books, a little bit philosophy, uh, some fiction. And I have 24 colleagues and uh, it's great. It's meaningful. The world is getting a little bit better because we publish great books. Just like you with your podcast, the world is getting a little bit better. And I think that's very important because everybody can change the world, but you know, you need to do it in tiny portions at a time. You've written six books? Eight. Sorry, you've written eight books. What are the eight books? (laughs) 
know, first I wrote about walking the North Pole, then to the South Pole, then a book on the three poles and some old expeditions. And then I wrote a book I call Philosophy for Polar Explorers, a kind of what they didn't teach me at school kind of book. And then I wrote a book about crossing New York City. I wrote a book about art collecting. And then I wrote a book on silence and then one on walking. These also are really cool on a bookshelf. Like I want to get more and more of your of your books that are th- that are this size. But one of the things I really like about the way that you um, structured it is it almost reads like a series of Coens and Mondos. Like they're these sort of individual, sometimes like parable kind of stories. Sometimes sort of. I was going to ask you: Did you write the book in Norwegian or did you write it in English in the first place? I wrote it in, in uh, Norwegian. I have to. But then I worked really hard to get the English, as you say, that is kind of more like a meditation. Like I wanted the reader to be almost a little bit hypnotized while reading. And also, like, you know, you said, the aesthetics, I think, is really important because I think especially a book on silence, but also walking, it has to somehow reflect the content of the book. And I think, you know, books should be beautiful and great to have around you. If not, you know, you could just have an ebook or listen to it on streaming, which is good too, but that's a different story. Yeah, well, it's, it's uh, uh, both of those things. I mean, specifically on, on, the, on, the, on the writing, it's very effective. I mean, uh, hypnotizing is a great word for it. Um, the, the English prose is beautiful and it, it's so poetic. And um, so excellent job. I mean, I know this is your business, but from, from, from my humble opinion, good job. <laughs> Thank you. You know, it, it's more than a business because, you know, it's, I don't think it, hardly anyone sits down to write a book because they would like to earn money. I think, you know, the reason to write a book is, uh, and this I know both as an author, as a publisher, you know, that has to come really from your heart. So I wouldn't spend a year and a half to write, you know, that thin book on silence if I didn't re- feel that I had something really important to say. Well, Erling, thank you so much for the time that you gave me today. Uh, my, my pleasure. You know, I, I feel privileged to be invited to be able to talk about things that are really close to my heart. So thank you. Or as you say in Norwegian, Tusen Takk. This episode of Ephemeral was written and assembled by Alex Williams, with producers Max Williams and Trevor Young, and editing by Rima Ilkayali. Special thanks to Nitro Sound in Oslo, Norway, and to Andrew Howard for gifting me a copy of Silence in the Age of Noise, which, along with Walking One Step at a Time, are the books by Erling Kage on which this conversation was based. Find them wherever books are sold, and find us on the World Wide Web at ephemeral show for more podcasts from iHeartRadio visit the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows